You're listening to the Pain Matters Podcast, presented by the American Academy of Pain Medicine, the nation's leading podcast for healthcare providers, focused on providing the best care today, tomorrow, and beyond. Each episode, we'll share the latest innovations and practical applications that directly impact how we care for patients and measure success in multidisciplinary care. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome back to Pain Matters. I'm your host, Dr. Shravni Dervakala, anesthesiologist and pain physician at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the creator and host of PainRounds.org. Today, I'm super excited to be here with Sarah Salachi, Chief Strategy Officer and co-founder at the Center for Innovation in Digital Health at Massachusetts General Brigham at Harvard. Sarah, welcome to our show. It's great to be here. So Sarah, tell us about your role and what exactly it is that you do. I've been in this role a little over three years. It's a role I helped create, but really at the after a call from our leadership to better help our internal research and innovation community partner externally for the purposes of accelerating digital health. It's an emerging field. It's an exciting field, but there's a lot of unknowns and challenges that come with that. And so I'm here to help try to solve that problem. So you've got all this talent at Massachusetts General and Brigham, and you've got clinicians, physicians, nurses, biomedical engineers, all these people who have ideas, and they can be applicable to industry needs. And you kind of put those two people together. Is that right? I would say at our core, we are matchmakers in the center. We're identifying problems that persist across care delivery from the need for new diagnostics to the need for better seamlessly integrated tools for the purposes of patient navigation throughout the hospital. And so digital and software-enabled solutions create really a very exciting opportunity for not just clinicians to innovate, but also staff. And and our center is here to support anybody with a good idea that where we can see a path forward. We do partner quite a bit with industry because at our core, we are not software developers. We are caregivers and hospital administrators. So uh, again, you know, I think our leadership recognized for us to really operate in the space and innovate in the space, we would need external partners. Yeah. What a valuable resource you guys provide um, to someone who has a great idea and wants to take that further or industry who has a need and needs people who can, you know, contribute to that gap and solving that problem. So thank you for everything that you guys do. Tell us about what is special about digital health that's so unique that you can't really find in the device space or pharma space. I've worked in healthcare almost my entire career. Um, I started out working in cancer, moved to pediatrics and What excites me so much about digital health is the ability or the the promise really to rapidly scale something. You know, technology when done right should persist and um, cross boundaries and, you know, where it's very, it can take quite a bit of time and, 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 and money to bring a new drug to market or a device in digital, there's a much more rapid process that one can follow that can have a much faster impact. And I'm so in awe and inspired by the amazing care that patients get within the Mass General Brigham system and really across all academic medical centers and seeing the power of digital and how that know-how can reach more, potentially reach more people, people who wouldn't necessarily have access to that level of care. Um, I just, I had to be part of it. 
Oh, that's amazing. And I know as physicians, a lot of times we're worried about the one patient that's in front of us at that time and their family and what's happening with them. But really, you know, from a public health perspective, I can say we should really be thinking about how we can scale innovation and reach the maximal number of people at, um, at any given time. And digital seems to allow that to happen rather quickly. And there's a lower barrier to entry. It's kind of what I hear you saying. And you saw this during the pandemic. I'm sure you experienced it. You know, there's that one-on-one interaction that you want to have sitting right in the room with your patient, but digital and you know telehealth tools probably allowed you to have meetings with the patient's family too. And they're an integral part of the care delivery team. And that's very exciting. I think, you know, digital takes the patient experience into account, you know, so much more aggressively than other you know, forms of caregiving can really do. And so it's, it's seems like a better way to meet the patient where they are. And I'm sure as a clinician, you appreciate that. Certainly. And I mean, at this, the pandemic is a really good time to be talking about this because we saw, we saw a ton of merger and acquisition activity in digital health and specifically in telehealth. And we know there was that big merger with Teladoc and Livongo is a great example, but there are many examples and it has really become a focus of um, our activity. And so Sarah, tell us, you know, when you evaluate industry partners, what do you actually look for? So obviously it varies, you know, given the size of the company we're looking for. And and often we're not looking at a specific type of company. It's more, we're looking to solve a problem and that problem potentially could be solved by a startup or a large company. And so what we really look for, I think, is fit. Um, And I even say this to people we hire within our organization. Sometimes your talent and what you, how good you are at something is less important than how well you fit in and how well we can work together. And I think with our industry partners, this very much proves to be true. So I look for um, humility. I think that's a big piece. You know, there are things that we do very well within the Mass General Brigham ecosystem, and there are things we don't do very well. We're not in the business of coding and commercializing, and so um, and you know we we have the experience of going through a post mortem when a mistake has been made and learning from that mistake. And so as we evaluate industry partners, I'm looking to see, do they align and have share that philosophy that it's okay not to have all the answers and are they willing to listen and learn from their mistakes? Because this is an emerging field and nobody is doing it hundred percent correctly yet. Yeah. That idea of humility, I think transcends medicine, business, public health. If you are overconfident and cocky, really, it's not going to work. And you need to be able to partner successfully, accept your failures, accept areas for improvement and opportunity for change. And I think that is something that is um, key, even at the medical student level, and then transcends into innovation in pretty much every space. Join us for the AAPM 38th Annual Meeting in Scottsdale, Arizona, from March 17 to 20th, 2022. Reconnect face-to-face with fellow pain medicine colleagues and friends while discovering the latest innovations and practical applications in pain medicine at this premier event. Meeting sessions and pre-conferences will span the full spectrum of interventional, behavioral, and pharmacological treatment of acute and chronic pain. Plus, this year marks a first-of-its-kind event for any pain specialty meeting titled the AAPM Innovation Challenge where cutting-edge entrepreneurs and startup companies working in the pain space will compete for more than $100,000 of in-kind prizes. 
Check out aapmannualmeeting.com to see our full speaker lineup and to register now. That's aapmannualmeeting.com. See you in the Sonoran Desert. Tell us about a successful external partnership that you guys have had. So one of my favorite partnerships has been with um, a pharmaceutical company, uh, AstraZeneca, actually. When I started in this role and as a, as a co-founder, as any co-founder, I, I had a lot of confidence that I'd be able to penetrate the big tech market and get them to do all sorts of things that would better meet the needs of the healthcare providers and, um, and large hospital systems. And the fact of the matter is, it was really hard. And so when this opportunity came um, forward to be able to work with AstraZeneca, I, I really ended up appreciating it because like, um, like academic medical centers, pharma understands the importance of rigor behind any solution you bring to market, especially when you're putting in the hands of the patient or where a clinician is making a decision. And so it was a much more um, seamless and easy partnership to um, be able to rapidly stand up. I mean, certainly, you know, the contracting and that's always difficult, but we just got each other from an organizational standpoint and, and we wanted to solve the same problem. And that was really, how can we better help manage chronic disease between clinical encounters? And um, we've been working on a solution called a maze. Um, we've developed two clinical care paths, one in asthma and one in heart failure, and have just finished um, the initial studies. So data will be coming out about those and with much more to come. And like I said, it was just this shared philosophy of how to do things and shared goal of what we want to do that I think has really made it very successful and rewarding. Well, that's good to know. You know, um, it is a fit. I think anytime that you partner with anybody, really, even as a physician, if you're going to partner with industry, um, it's all about the fit and how you guys get along and if you have the same goals and interests. What I think is really cool when you partner with such large pharmaceutical companies, is yes, the rigor that you mentioned, but also they're in so many areas of medicine. Right. And so it opens up so many opportunities to not intervene in perhaps one space, but then expand to multiple areas. So I have a question, which is, you know, a lot of people have asked me this when it comes to software, how do you protect your IP? Because it seems so easy to just tweak a few things and then suddenly it's a new software. It's very easy to replicate software. So the guidance that I, I give anybody who comes to me with this question is you can't, you really can't protect your intellectual property as it relates to software and software code. And that's, counterintuitive to everything we learn <laughs> along the path in academic medicine around protecting your ideas. And so the special sauce behind any good digital health software, frankly, is that clinical know-how. And so as an innovator in this space, you need to really think carefully about what is it you want to accomplish and what is the best path to do that. And it could be that you want to you end up creating open source software. So open source software is software code that is freely available. In the academic world where you, you, you may have some exposure to um, open source software is I2B2. This is a widely scaled um, platform for querying healthcare data. I was actually partially developed at Mass General. 
And that is scaled globally at this point and it's open source, but you know, then it's, well, how do you, how do you commercialize something around open source software, knowing you can't really protect it. And what's most important is you get out into the market. I think it's the services you put around it. So software alone isn't all that effective. It's the support that you put around it. So think about something simple, like when the EHR implementations happened, right? how systems paid for a software license, but they paid for the services to implement it around it, sometimes just as much as, if not more than the software license. So there's still an opportunity to build a commercial entity around software, but I think increasingly you're you're going to see less sale of the licenses itself and more around the services around it. Yeah, really interesting and very different from devices or pharmaceuticals where it's all about the patent. And it's not that you can't get patents on software. It's just that people can switch a few things and suddenly your patent doesn't apply. And so that's kind of like a big issue. And we have to think a little bit differently about digital health and when we're innovating in that space. That's exactly right. And so, Sarah, what ingredients do you think that a person needs if they want to successfully innovate in the digital health space today? So first and foremost, know what you don't know and don't put the pressure on yourself to know it. You don't have to go out and learn Python and Java to be an innovator in this space. I didn't even know what an API was until two and a half years ago. What you need to know is your value and your value is your know-how and find the right partners, people that you trust, vendors, companies that can help digitize that and then just let it go in some ways. You have to let your ideas get out there and and think about what's most important to you. And if it's reaching people at scale, the way that we used to do that is through publication. This is actually a much faster way to get a solution into the hands of a patient or their caregivers um, if done right. And so Don't get caught up in how do I protect this and should I copyright it or patent it? Just get it out there and find the right people around you to help you do that. Great advice. And how do investors feel about this? Venture capitalists, are they interested in the digital space as much as they may have been in pharma or device? There is so much stupid money being thrown around in digital health. If ever there was a time for an innovator to try something new, experiment, um, this is it. And you see a lot of big investments being made. And at some point, there will be a market correction, per se, and VCs are going to get much more discerning. And some already are. And I think what they're going to look for is there's been a lot of time and and money spent on that first-to-market approach. And there is something to be said for that. But I think we're going to start to see an increased desire for VCs to see some rigor behind that. And so, you know, I would encourage the research and innovation community to think about not just getting to market first, but what is the minimum viable product I can test in a real world environment that shows that this improves an outcome, saves cost, prove it before you put the money into it to scale it. Yeah, because in, you know, in these other spaces in pharma and device, most of these things have to be validated by the FDA. And so they naturally have to go through all of this kind of clinical trials, et cetera. In the digital space, many things don't have to be. That's right. And that can be dangerous, actually, I think, you know, 
I get it. A 10 year horizon to bring a drug to market is not compatible with digital health where, you know, you've got 18 months at best to get into the market, but find a way to prove what you can do or what your solution does early, early on, because like I said, increasingly, I think the the funding is going to start to lock down. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you say that. I just took a class in my MBA on artificial intelligence and healthcare, and I can certainly see the applications in the digital health space. So what do you think about that? So my guess is like cold computing is going to be the new AI. There's always going to be something, right? <laughs> but you are seeing a trend, especially with um, algorithms and, and the FDA, where there's more rigor is going to be, I think, put upon how these solutions are evaluated, how they're maintained, how they're retrained. And so, you know, I think it's to our benefit being at places like Hopkins and Mass General, where industry can come to us to help continue to test and revalidate these solutions that can have enormous impact um, and but but need that consistent exposure into the healthcare space in order to be, I guess, best in class and and relevant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it doesn't mean that there's not opportunity for those who are not at major academic centers. I mean, I think anyone can do this, but you can always go to Sarah's team and say, hey, you know, now I'm coming externally and I want to partner with you guys and they can provide those resources. So even if you're not in an academic center, um, her services still have, have value. So with that, Sarah, any final words that you have, um, any words of encouragement perhaps for innovators that are out there? Digital health is an emerging field and it's a little bit chaotic, but in chaos, there's opportunity. There's so much space left to be the thought leader to help define this field Um, and to do so in a way that is, I think, incredibly responsible and important. Take all you've learned, all your training, all your experience working in the healthcare environment and help influence tech, especially big tech, to bring their expertise to this environment in a way that is safe and responsible. And you'll be the leader. There's so much open space. It's incredibly exciting time. I I can't wait to see what comes in the next couple of years. I think we're going to see incredible breakthroughs. Well, Sarah, thank you. I hope you've inspired some of our listeners today and we'll see maybe the next um, big, you know, digital company will come out of your conversation here today. We'll see. Um, But thank you so much for being here. Thank you to the AAPM for this podcast and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Pain Matters podcast. If there's anything we mentioned in today's show you missed, don't worry. We take the notes for you at painmed.org slash podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, please consider pressing the subscribe button on your podcast player so you never miss a future episode. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review to help us reach and educate even more of our peers in pain medicine.